Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. The influence of reading in childhood and what we read in childhood has an effect that lasts a lifetime. And in literary writers, these influences are deep set and certainly in the case of Iris Murdoch, regularly appear intertextually in her work. Treasure Island, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, Stevenson's Kidnapped, Kipling's Kim and a range of others crop up regularly in her novels. And today we'll be discussing why Murdoch does this and what it can add to our own appreciation of her fiction. And joining me today are two experts in the field. Uh, we have Jan Skinner. Hello, Jan. Hi. Uh, Jan is an interdisciplinary scholar and has published on the moral philosophy of George Eliot, on uh, Virginia Woolf, on Murdoch, of course, and much else besides. And prior to retirement, she worked as a part-time tutor in English literature at the University of Oxford's Department for Continuing Education. And this podcast, in a sense, has been inspired by her work because in um, one of the uh, Palgrave collections, um, Iris Murdoch Texts and Contexts, Jan's written a wonderful essay on this very subject. So um, in the SoundCloud link, uh, you'll find a link to that. So it's great that Jan can join us to uh, say a little more about it because it's been a while since that, that came out and I'm sure she's got some new thoughts. And returning to the podcast after a gap of several months is Anne Rowe. Hello, Anne. Hello, Miles, again. It's lovely, hello. Lovely to have you back, back again. Um, Anne is, I'm sure, well known to everybody, but if you don't know her, um, then you really ought to get her latest work on Murdoch in the Liverpool University um, Press Collection uh, in Writers and Their Work. But of course, she's also um, co-edited um, Iris Murdoch's Letters, Living on Paper, and um, many other collections, and of course, um, Iris Murdoch and the Visual Arts. Anne, if I may, can I start with you? Could you say a little bit about Murdoch's childhood, um, her reading habits, and I think also her relationship with her father, who I think seemed to give her most encouragement in this area? Yes, I certainly can. Um, I was actually reading Jan's excellent essay on the influence of Murdoch's childhood reading on her mature work when I was teaching at Kingston University a module on Iris Murdoch, a special study on the novels, and a module on children's literature. Um, and when I was in discussion with the students, we got to talking about the links between these novels and Murdoch's novels. And I think I must have given a lecture on it because of some of the material that I'm going to talk about today. Um, you know, I have a great debt of gratitude to you, Jan, for that, because a lot of this comes out of that. There were extraordinary links. There are extraordinary links. But before I go on to that, um, I th thought I would say something about the kind of child that Iris mm. Murdoch was. Um, Jan, you mentioned there's no, no uh, direct recognition by Murdoch that she claimed no influence. Uh, but there must have been. She was saturated, childhood was saturated in the reading of children's literature. So I kind of think even if you can't directly attribute influence uh, of the childhood reading to the novels, there's certainly claims for a psychoanalytic reading, that mm. it's, it's coming through uh, from some part of her mind where she retained all this action and tension and excitement that she experienced when she was reading. So she said that from the age of eight or nine, she wanted to be a writer. Um, and how was that, you know, was this an influence of the childhood reading that she, she had with her father? Her father was a great influence. He was the teller of these stories in her life, this famous trinity of love. Um, Conradi has suggested Oedipal implications that impact on her adult fiction. Uh, of course, he says Iris Murdoch was in love with her father. 
and he points to the recurrent theme of incest in her plots, which may be suppressed desire. Now, certainly the themes of two women competing for the same man come up again and again. Julian and Rachel for Arnold and Bradley in The Brack Prince, Miranda Perronet uh, competing for Felix Mitchum in The Sandcastle. So that's one way um, that this can be coming through, sort of subconsciously. Um, the excellent education that she had as a child, where she would have been exposed to great uh, literature, children's literature, certainly would have had an influence. Uh, when Avril Horner and I were giving talks uh, when we published the letters um, of Iris Murdoch, many questions from the floor came up and talked about this privileged childhood that she had. So it seems as if you know, this, this knowledge was gifted to her, this education was gifted, and that it was no surprise that, that she turned into the great writer that she was. Uh, the point I always <clears throat> was careful to mention is that it wasn't gifted, this privileged education, it was very hard earned. She was an industrious, hardworking, diligent and dedicated child, and she loved the reading uh, and, and took it you know, very, very seriously. So this education, the scholarship to badminton was only one of two in the country. This was a scholarship. This was not gifted to her. From badminton, she won an open exhibition, 40 pounds a year to read English at Somerville. Um, so exceptional intelligence, sheer determination, uh, that's what defined the child that, that turned in, into this um, great writer. I just thought we might like to hear the voice of the child. Uh, as well, before we go on and talk That'd about him. Um, there's a letter. She's only 14 years old when she writes this letter. She's in Dunleary uh, in, in Ireland. And um, there's, there's a great exciting event that she records in a letter to a, a school friend um, that she's stayed in contact with all her life, Anne Leach. Um, you can hear the excitement. This is the voice of the storyteller. It's there, it's in the voice of the child when she's only 14 years old. There might be something to do with her Irish background, uh, the, the telling of the tales, the Irish love for telling stories coming through here as well. But this is what she tells Anne Leach. Great excitement here. Last Sunday week night, that sounds queer. A terrible storm got up and on Monday morning about eight o'clock, the first maroon went for the lifeboat. I was in the bathroom at the time. I never got washed so quick as I did then. I was dressed and doing my hair when the second maroon went. Then I flew out of the house. Doors were banging all the way down the street and the entire population of Dunleary seemed to be running to the harbour. Doodle, that's daddy, and my cousin had already left with the first maroon. The lifeboat was in the harbour mouth when I arrived. I asked a man, what was up? A yacht had evidently broke its moorings and drifted out of the harbour. Anyway, we could see it on the horizon. A high sea was running and I was glad to have my Macintosh with me. I dashed down to the pier, which was a mile long and was drenched by the spray as the waves were breaking over the pier. The sand whipped up by the wind, drove in the clouds and I got some in my eye, which hurt like anything. The lifeboat had an awful job. It was pitching and toshing, tossing and once we thought it was going down, but it got to the yacht and turned out to be empty and towed it back to admit the enthusiastic cheers of the populace. Today, they are raising one of the yachts that sank. 
this is all about the excitement. There's no thought of the poor people who might be drowned on the yacht. Um, she just, she so enjoyed uh, that excitement of the story. And she so enjoyed telling that story to somebody else. Storytelling was in her blood, I think, from her father, from her background, from her education, from her Irishness. It was there yes. uh, right from the beginning. Yeah, no, that's that's great, Anne. Thank you for, for um, sort of sketching out a little bit of her childhood and also that, that, that wonderful letter as well. Jan, I mentioned at the top of the podcast um, a sort of a, a range of important um, childhood classics, I suppose. Could you um, give us a little bit more um, on, on those kind of the, the books that she was reading and what she got from them? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing I was just going to comment to Anne that that letter that Iris wrote to Anne Leach is a, a version of Treasure Island. I mean, it's a, a story about boats, a boat being cast adrift and a rescue taking place and the excitement of people watching from the shore. It's, it's, it's not just yes. what really yeah. happened, but it, it's, it's evoking that, that text that was so important to her. Um, yes, I mean, Treasure Island, we've got evidence, haven't we, from what she actually said in interviews, what she told um, interviewers uh, about the books that she loved as a child. Um, we've got some evidence from, from letters she wrote and, and in essays, um, but we've also got the evidence within the novels. And so the direct and the indirect um, are remarkably uh, compatible, actually. Um, and the reader can spot through quotes and references and allusions, the, the way in which the particular texts did influence her as a child. And the ones that she refers to endlessly are Treasure Island by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, the Alice books by Lewis Carroll and uh, Kipling's Kim. Mm -hmm. Kidnapped also to some extent, but I think less so. But there was other reading. I mean, we know that she wrote, she read, um, it depends how we're defining childhood, I guess, doesn't it? Because if we're looking to those early books that her father shared with her, her mother read to her as well, but it seems to have been the books that her father um, owned and shared and talked about with her that had the, the biggest influence. Um, and that would have included, we think, Dickens, probably Jane Austen. Um, certainly as she got older, she loved Conrad. She was introduced to the myth, myth, myths, the classical myths, Arabian Nights, and we know she read Angela Brazil's school stories. Um, but it's those three really key texts that, that come up again and again in the novels. And if you think about what she was reading, one thought might be these were books usually thought of as boys' books. Yes, of course. There were lots of books directed more at girls. Many of her generation would have read Little Women, um, The Secret Garden, Anne of Green Gables, uh, the Katie books. But the girls' books tended to be much more moralizing, much more internal and domestic. Rather um, more sedate, perhaps. And more sedate. Yeah. And um, it, it whether, whether Iris Murdoch was more drawn to the, the books, what we know about children's reading, I think, is that boys tend not to want to read books that girls feature in, or a lot, or that girls read, whereas girls are 
often quite happy to read books that are more associated with boys or have boy heroes. And, and all of these three key texts, Treasure Island, um, Alice and Kim, all have lone protagonists who are children. If you think about Treasure Island has uh, Jim Hawkins, Alice is on her own, and uh, in Kim, Kim, a young boy in, in India who goes off on his travels with the, the Tibetan Lama is, is an orphan. So this idea of the only child linking into lone protagonists, I think is quite key in, in Murdoch's favored texts. Not the only text she read by any means, but the ones that recur again and again. And is that influence of her father, which Anne was talking about, which is, is so important um, and which crops up not only in, what, in the way she talked about him, but in characters um, in the novel, both Charles Arabi and, and, and um, Bradley Pearson uh, refer to Treasure Island and uh, fathers are referred to often as being gentle and bookish men who introduced the, the, the character to, to reading as a child. Uh, so I think that's the that's a sort of the wider picture. It's 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 not books just that were written for children. It's books that children read, and and there is a, a difference, which was um, in in Iris Murdoch's childhood, children's literature was much less um, specific and much less uh, sort of available, I suppose, than than it is today. I don't know if that's a fair comment, Anne, if you... Yeah, yes, um, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, certainly the way that children consume media. And of course, there wasn't, you know, the great proliferation of different forms of media that there are today as well. But, you know, you, yeah. and also I, I imagine to buy a book would have, you know, would have been quite expensive or to join a lending library. Um, much, you know, very, very different to uh, the situation that we find ourselves in today. But we know that Iris Murdoch's father owned a lot of books. Sure. And in fact, when they moved, I think when they moved from Stiefel Aston to, to Hamilton Road in Oxford, uh, much in her later life, uh, she sold her father's collection, first editions of Jane Austen. Wow. Which is extraordinary. But um, so he obviously had a, a, a library. I, I also think, and maybe we'll talk about this later, I don't know if we have any of the books in, in the libraries that the Iris Murdoch Society has bought, which are books that she would have read as a child, because I actually think which editions she read is probably significant, because I believe that the illustrations in the books often influenced her as much as the text. I think it would be fair to say that she would have read the Alice books with the Tenniel illustrations. Absolutely. And we know she, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I but know a... my own copy of Peter Pan, uh, which I read when I started to teach it. And when I went in, it was nothing like the, the copy that the students had bought. Right, yes. It was completely um, foreshortened. And, and some of the very difficult parts in, in Peter Pan where the, the, the sexualization of the child didn't exist in my copy which had beautiful illustrations of little fairies um, and pirates you know so I'm not sure Jan about whether or not we've got and I don't think no. any of her children's books in no. our I, I know she 
on the tube with her father uh, when they lived in visit. Uh, and she used to catch the tube and they used to go into the bookshop, uh, mm. Blackwell's, I think, in London, and, and buy books together. Yes. And choose yeah. books together. And would it be fair to say that Bible stories would have also been important to her in her childhood? Yes, we do have her Bible in, in the archives. And do you know what? It's, it's actually underlined. She's actually read the Bible and there's underlinings in it. It, was, it says to, uh, to Iris from Granny. Mm. And I think she was about 10 years old when she received that. So she was certainly reading the Bible, annotating the Bible uh, when she was really very young. So she yeah. would have been very familiar with the Bible stories. Mm. I think that's probably a, a, a podcast for another time. Let's 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 go back and, and think a little bit about Treasure Island because I think this okay. is probably out of all of them the most important text yeah. um, for her um, as, as a child. I think I think Jan, it's, she says in an interview somewhere that it it was the most important book for in in her early life. She says, "I think my ideal book is Treasure Island." This was talking to. Antonia Byatt in 1971. This was the first book in my life, I think, and I never really got over it. One likes adventure, and to unravel a series of adventures is a very delightful occupation. Um, and then she says, uh, talking to Susan Hill, um, my father loved Treasure Island, I remember we used to so much enjoy talking about it and being frightened by the sound of the blind man's stick, pew, tapping on the road. And the exact moment when Jim goes up the mast and another step, Mr. Hans, and I'll blow your brains out. This I was enjoying very much at a very early age. <laughs> um, so yes, it, it, was, it was a key. I, my, my thought about these three texts is, Treasure Island influenced her in terms of exciting storytelling, a fast paced narrative, um, excitement uh, and enchanter figures. I think the Alice books were about language and about comedy. And I think the story of Kim is one that was a spiritual search and a search for the father and the exotic landscapes which was more about atmosphere so I think each of the three key texts offered her something significantly different in terms of her development as a writer. And how important think, think about those those the thematics you've just talked about how important those are throughout all 26. Absolutely yes yes yes. And so, um, so it, it influenced so it, it influences her then, not just the way that she kind of uses elements of those three novels within her book, but also to almost underpin her own kind of narrative technique. Anne, was that something that you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, agree with. I, 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 yeah, the first point I was going to make about Treasure Island, it, it's not just the um, the enchantment and the excitement of the the story. Um, it's it's about the form, the way she uses form in mm. the novel as well. Um, Treasure Island is a self-reflexive novel. It's a novel about itself. It's a book about storytelling. It's about the joys of storytelling and the dangers of storytelling. Uh, it begins uh, with a warning to the hesitating purchaser, purchaser about trusting the kind of story that it's going to tell them. It says, uh, this is gonna be an old fashioned story told in the old fashioned way. If you want one of those newfangled children's stories, this isn't the place where you're going to find it. Uh, he's going to buy in 
just to real old fashioned um, methods of storytelling. Uh, and I, I think there's lots of incidences um, in, in the, the poetics of the language, the excitement, the tension, the action, and the way it moves um, and, and maps itself out. I think she was hugely influenced by it. And as a, again, I'm not sure whether this is conscious, but unconsciously in her own writing, she often follows that kind of rhythmical plot, shape, and, and linguistic um, evocations of, of poetry in, in the language. And it sounds to me then that it isn't just restricted to her fictional development and, and, and thoughts about story. It, it, it kind of influences her entire kind of mindset and almost kind of stretches into how she considers morality at an early age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the point about Treasure Island is it has a moral centre. Uh, the point of the story is that Jim Hawkins has to learn who to trust. Mm. He's got a, he, he, all these pirates and uh, there's the doctor, there's Trelawney, who's the, the, the mayor, the, the authoritative figure in the novel. Who's the wise man and who's the buffoon? Mm. And, and you know, there's two first person narrators, interesting, two first person male narrators. Uh, in, in Treasure Island. Uh, that's Jim Hawkins and Dr. Livesey. Interesting, Jim Hawkins's narrative is much more exciting. Dr. Livesey is the, the good man in the novel, but he's quite boring by comparison. Um, you know, his, those two, two chapters in the middle of the novel are gonna struggle the child uh, to, to, you know, to, to keep going with that after the excitement of Jim's uh, narrative. And there's loads of storytellers in the book. The book is saturated with stories, storytellers. And, you know, Jim's life comes to depend on how well he can read character, how well he can decide who's telling him the truth and who's leading him up the, the garden path. Struck me that Murdoch scholarship is, pays a lot of attention to how characters become good, how these characters learn to see clearly, look outside themselves, but we don't pay quite so much attention to how readers learn to identify the good characters. How do we um, identify good from evil? It, it's not quite as clear at cut in the novels as you think it ought to be sometimes. So how do we recognize a saint or a sinner? Peter Conradi said there's not enough about um, evil in the novels. Uh, Stevenson nails it in Treasure, Treasure Island, absolutely nails it. Because when you get to the end of the book, Jim knows exactly who he can trust and who he can't trust, who the good man is and who the bad man is. Interesting point again about the narrative device, I think that might have influenced her. There's no wagging finger. There is no intrusive didactic narrator in Treasure Island telling the child reader right from wrong. The book structure means that it's up to the child to decipher the moral of the story. The child's got to, to work it out for himself. Uh, likewise with Iris Murdoch, you know, she, she operates through this gestalt process where there's always a gap between the story. Uh, very, very rarely does she step in. I think only in The Bell, maybe in a bit in The Nice and the Good, does she ever halt the action, George Eliot style, and step in, you know. <laughs> Uh, the moral code's got to come from uh, the, the reader. Uh, and of course, as Jan, you were talking about uh, Long John Silver. I mean, he's the great charming character. Um, he's a great storyteller, but he's, he's utterly charming, fun-loving, and he's a great friend to Jim Hawkins and a great protector. But of course, he is the ultimate villain, villain in the novel. A sharp crook, he's ruthless, capable of shooting a man in the back. 
but it's a wonderful part at the end of the novel when, when Jim is summing up the character of Long John Silver. He says, to me, he was unwearingly kind. Mm. And what Jim comes to understand, and I think what Murdoch wants her own readers to learn is that we should never lose sight of a character's complexity. Uh, no one is completely, you know, without some redemptive features, even Julius King. Um, but what Jim has to learn is to be discerning. And I think this comes down to her readers as well. We have to learn to be discerning readers. Jim has to know Long John Silver can't be trusted, however good or kind he was. Um, and, and this kind of, forgive me for bringing this old chestnut up again, you know, if Jim Hawkins has to realise who he can trust at the end, the reader has to trust Jim Hawkins. We have to trust Stevenson to know that the child needs to know that he's been led to some kind of moral understanding about humanity. And I think somehow that Murdoch shared that. You know, the old chestnut Bradley Pearson at the end of The Black Prince, do we believe him? It's in her um, interview, I think, uh, well, I can't remember who with Miles, the interview where she actually steps out and says, we must, um, we must trust. Mm. We must know that this man did not kill his friend. And I think somehow if, if we lose that, um, we, you know, if, if the, the child reader doesn't trust Jim at the end, um, then it's a failure of morality and it's a failure of art. And I would think she would think if we don't trust her narrator when she means us to, when she, it, she decides us to, it's a failure of art and a, and a failure of morality there. So I think a huge um, influence of thinking about how far art must tell the truth and how far the reader must be able to understand what truth that that novel is telling. It's very much present in, in Treasure Island. This, this question about truth and narration, thinking about how it changes from the bell to the Black Prince and then to end in the philosopher's pupil and these yeah. different forms of truth telling and understanding and that with those those elements is, is a fascinating one. But Jan, I'd like to bring you in at this point to um, sort of reflect on what Anne has, has said there and also yeah. to say a little bit about Treasure Island yourself, I think, because it is such an important book. Well, it's the book that... Bradley Pearson in The Black Prince wishes that he had written, um, yeah. uh, which I think is a, a, a clue. Um, and of course, Jim does have to find out and, and, and work out who, who the good and uh, are and where the good is in, in the book. But interestingly, Murdoch uses the device of an overhearing scene when, when Jim is in the apple barrel is when he discovers that Long John Silver is in fact um, one uh, the, pr proposing to lead a mutiny that he is not one of the good guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and that is that real ambivalence in him. Long John Silver, I, I think, is is um, an absolutely key character as a, her first enchanter figure. Canetti thought he was her her yeah. great enchanter figure. Canetti in that horrible bit in his, his memoir in Party in the Blitz, where he talks about Iris's erotic fantasies of, of being a pirate and being ravished by him. Um, but I think um, he, was, he was very much um, uh, not her first because Long John Silver, here's a description of Long John Silver from a, a contemporary critic. And see who this reminds, reminds you of in terms of Iris Murdoch's enchanters. His wickedness is the wickedness of a man of genius. 
He has no heart, but yet he has any amount of character and brains. He's a desperado of the worst type, but entirely passionless, a kind of buccaneering borger. In victory and defeat alike he, may, alike, he maintains a magnificent intellectual superiority to himself, his comrades and his circumstances. And when at last he disappears from the story, you're glad he's not gone the way of his companions who were shot or drowned or stabbed or marooned. He's got off with a whole skin and a bag full of pieces of eight. And like Julius King mm. at the end of uh, a fairly honourable defeat, going off uh, uh, to his, his, his restaurant meal, yeah. Long John Silver gets away. Um, he, he has that ambivalence, which Anne describes, absolutely. Uh, but I think he, he's also um, a very strong enchanter figure for everyone else in the novel. I mean, he's meant to be the ship's cook, isn't he? But he, he's actually um, a charming, devious, clever manipulator. And that speaks so strongly to that role that Julius King plays in A Fairly Honourable Defeat. And, and to other enchanted figures, but particularly to that novel, I think. Well, that's what makes him so dangerous. Yes. Doctor. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. He has yeah. that capacity to charm. Charm is not a very good quality to have in Iris Murdoch's novels, I've come to realise. No, no. What <laughs> about that quotation where she memorises those two lines about Blind Pew, the entrance yes. of Blind Pew mm. um, is, is the one, and, and that... Um, section where Jim goes up the mast and yeah. says one more st step Mr Hans. Clearly uh, I'd looked at these two two sections carefully with my students you know the entrance of Blind Pew. Mm. Um, Jim is standing at the door of the Admiral Benbow mm. uh, I think it's just after the funeral of Billy, Billy Bones Black Dog mm. and Billy Bones has said to him watch out for the man with the one leg watch out for, for him because he's going to come and get me. He's going to deliver the black spot. Mm. He's going to pronounce a death sentence on Billy Bones. So Jim is terrified of, of this character. He's terrified of seeing um, the, this man coming along and he's standing at the door of the Admiral Benbow. And he looks up and he hears the tapping, the tap, tap, tap of the stick. And he thinks, oh my God, it's him, it's him. But when he looks, it's a poor old man with his head bent and his hood, and he has a green visor over his eyes. And he walks rather pathetically up to Jim. And he says, will any kind of friend inform a poor blind man who has lost the precious sight of his eyes in gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George, where or in what part of this country he may now be. So this cunning, wheedling voice um, then offers his hand, which Jim takes. Jim has been taken in now. He thinks, oh God, it's not him. It's not uh, the man with, with the wooden leg. And he takes Blind Pooh's hand and suddenly Blind Pooh changes character. I held out my hand and the horrible, soft-spoken, eyeless creature gripped it in a moment like a vice. Pure poetry. I think mm -hmm. that's an anapestic uh, poet, poetry meter there. Um, and this wheedling voice and the arrival at the door comes up over and over again in Murdoch's novels. People banging doors, knocking doors, coming in suddenly through doors. Um, and this wheedling, begging voice uh, is certainly in Francis Marlowe's voice when he comes to Bradley mm -hmm. Pearson's door. Um, and it kind of helps you if you make that link 
to the wheedling voice of Blind Pew, helps you to read the character of, of Francis Marlowe. He's described in very similar terms. He's cunning, he's unkempt, and he's fawning. Please don't be cross with me, Brad. Brad, please listen to me, I beseech you. So the echo of Blind Pooh hints that Francis might ultimately be one of the most culpable characters in The Black Prince. If you read The Black Prince through that prism of, of Blind Pooh, Francis Marlowe is, you know, he's the one in, the, in a way who causes the whole tragedy at the end of the novel by leaving Priscilla, going upstairs uh, to, to see this man with whom he's interested in. And that in turn starts the train of events that leads to Arnold Baffin's death. Same thing's happens in The Good Apprentice when Stuart Kuno goes upstairs and leaves uh, and, and then tragedy happens because he's, le he's lost, he's left his post, mm. he's, he's left his station. So beware of the innocent tapping and grand entrances uh, in Murdoch's novels. So my quiz, Israel Hands is one of the really most unredeemable characters um, in Treasure Island. Murdoch gives the name Hans only to one character in the 26 novels. <laughs> Georgie Hans in a severed head. Now, is this a simple coincidence? Was she just, you know, fishing around in her head for a, a name for this character and Hans just came to mind? But could there be? I don't think she does that too often. I think there might be a link. And if you if you adapt the same sort of strategy that I've been adapting to Francis Marlowe, linking him with Blind Pew, um, if you link Georgie Hans with this character, how might that lend a different light onto that character? Why does she choose Georgie Hans to give to one of the most disreputable characters in children's fiction that she so loved? That's my quiz. Answers on a postcard. Well, uh, well, answers perhaps to um, <laughs> either on Twitter or on the um, to the Irish oh. account or to the Facebook page, and we will send you a copy of Anne's book if you get it right. Oh, right. So Anne Good. will. Um, <laughs> Anne will. Um, I will. I, I, you can be the adjudicator, Anne, and we will send out yeah. um, one and um, in um, mm -hmm. in about a month's time to the person that we think is uh, has got it um, the closest, and we'll make an announcement. That'd be fun. Uh, it's the first time we've done a quiz on the on the podcast. Jan, I, however, however wonderful Treasure Island is, um, we are moving. Um, can I just say one thing then before we move on? Yes, do. Just, one, I just want to add one thought about the, the quotation that Anne refers to, that Iris Murdoch often uh, herself uh, puts in her novels and also in conversations, and which she and John Bailey used to um, share together with enjoyment this one more step Mr Hans said I and I'll blow your brains out that's the bit that she always quotes but the next bit which slightly changes the tone is dead men don't bite you know I added with a chuckle and I think that's a very interesting sort of um, tone I don't I don't quite um, understand what's happening there Anne's absolutely right. The the gun that he does, Jim does shoot Israel Hands, but it is made clear that he says, I can scarce say it was by my own volition. I'm sure it was without a conscious aim. Both my pistols went off and both escaped out of my hands. But is that also a, a moment of the coming of age of of uh Jim Hawkins, that it is actually, in a way, a, it was seen as a coming-of-age novel, wasn't it? That yeah. that this boy starts as very innocent and, and very much the sort of the cabin boy level, 
and ends up as as the hero. And so, maybe these sorts of stories appeal to her as well. I mean, we can perhaps with her reading of Dickens that comes a little bit later. Um, and and she, you can see that as the, in the Alice books as well. She, she did, just to add quickly about, about pirates, she did actually read other pirate books, mm. perhaps a bit later on, but she was very keen on Raphael Sabatini's Captain Blood uh, novels. And she had what she refers to as a whole Raphael Sabatini period of writing, of reading in her, when she was at, at boarding school, I think. So pirates, pirates feature endlessly. Um, characters get referred to as pirate-like or piratical in, in lots of the novels. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's Treasure Island. Okay. So do you think, Anne, that that was being in, uh, somehow um, taken on board by the child Iris Murdoch? Or do you think that at the time it was very much the adventure, the fear, the... the uh, tension in, in those scenes that was I think it was her. both. I think she would have been very aware of the moral issues that right. Steve was playing that, with there. Um, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you kill, you go to hell, basically. And do you think she and her father would have talked about that? Absolutely. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I really yeah. do. I think, you know, that discussion of, of would it be right to do something that religiously and legally is, is the wrong thing to do, but mm. he's got to save his life and he's got to get back to the shore. He's got to get those, his friends. It's his friend, Dr. Livesey. It's the good men, the good people who've been left on shore. Israel yeah. wants to get his hands on the treasure. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and, and Jim wants to get to save the lives of the, the, the people that he loves. So there's a big difference there being yeah. held out. But it, it's extremely complex um, for, for, for a children's story. And I, I'm not sure yeah. how, you know, certainly when, my, when I read it to my children, I didn't spot it and neither did uh, my children. Mm. It was much more to do with the excitement of the yes. story. Well, that, that's a wonderful discussion of Treasure Island, but um, time, time pressing. We, we, move we, on. we, must, we must move on. Um, Jan, I think... Uh, Let's move on to the the two Alice um, books because yes. I think, again these are so Im so important to her and not not just in the in her in her in her early life but we you know rereading the Green Knight recently that that you know you get the uh, the mention of the door the Dormouse quite early I think on page one of the Green Knight so it, it seems that they, those two books have an enormous influence on on her reading and her writing later. Yes, Iris Murdoch wasn't the only. Uh, by any means, author who paid homage to the influence of the Alice books um, on her own imagination, her own creative imagination. Um, when people, writers were interviewed uh, at various stages, so many of them quoted Alice as being part of their childhood. Um, and I think the Alice books were probably most prominent in The Flight from the Enchanter and The Nice and the Good and The Time of the Angels in Iris Murdoch's work. Mm. Um, and what she took from Alice, I think, was the upside down world of Lewis Carroll's imagination and his way of expressing it through funny, comic prose. Um, she seems to have been influenced by particular um, scenes in the books. And she often actually muddles which book she's talking about. She doesn't always reference specifically the one. Alice 
Alice's Adventures in Wonderland uh, is the one which features Alice drowning in the pool of, or swimming, sorry, in the pool of tears with the mouse. And that, that is a key image that she, she enjoyed and often referred to. And then Alice and the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, which I think is, is quite definitely evoked in The Flight from the Enchanter, um, is also in Alice in, in Wonderland. But um, Alice Through the Looking Glass is the, the book which gave her that central image of passing into another world. I wanted to just um, quote something she said in, in her journals. Here it is. This was in a journal of, in March 1947. She says this, philosophy is nothing to me if it is not my whole life, like a gauze curtain through which everything must pass. I am close up against it, very close, but it will not dissolve like trying to go through the looking glass. Um, so here is um, an example of the influence of the pictures. Alice in the illustration by Tenniel is pictured on one page with her back to the mirror, looking into looking glass world, into the looking glass house. And in the other, she's come through on the other side. Uh, it's a very cleverly drawn picture with everything in, in mirror image. Here, here is Alice looking through the mirror. She's talking to her kitten and she says, how nice it would be if we could only get through into Looking Glass House. I'm sure it's got beautiful things in it. Let's pretend there's a way of getting through into it. Let's pretend the glass has got all soft like gauze so that we can get through. Why, it's turning into a sort of mist now, I declare. It'll be easy enough to get through. She was up on the chimney piece while she said this, though she hardly knew how she had got there. And certainly the glass was beginning to melt away just like a silvery mist. And now here is Muriel in the time of the angels spying on Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who's having an incestuous relationship with, with Carol, the, her father. Light seemed to fall like a faint concealing veil between her and the mirror. She stared through the arch of the glass, trying to fix her gaze upon the dimmer, gauzier forms of the reflections, which seemed to lie in some reserved and further space beyond the near familiar brightness of her cousin's room. So there you've got the verbal echoes, the, the, the gauze, the mist, the veil, striking parallels between yeah not just the words, but also what's happening in those tenial pictures. And if anyone is listening has got a copy of the Alice books, or you can actually find them online as well. If you look at that, that, that paired picturing of Alice trying to go through the looking glass, that's quite extraordinarily mapped by Iris Murdoch in, in her um, imaginative um, reworking of it in, in a rather sinister way in a rather um, Definitely. Yeah. dark way in the time of the angels. Um, but I also think, uh, going back to, to Alice in Wonderland, that the illustration of Alice swimming in the pool of tears with the mouse is 
what stuck in her mind from the, um, the, the, her encounter with the Alice books in childhood. Because when she takes John Duquesne into the cave when he's trying to rescue Piers in, in The Nice and the Good, um, she has him swimming in the pool of the cavern. He had a sudden mental image of the picture in Through the Looking Glass of Alice and the mouse swimming in the pool of tears. He had a clear memory of the grace with which Alice swam, her dress so elegantly spread out in the water. Something about that picture must have affected him when he was a child. Girls and their dresses, he called again, silence. Um, actually, Jean Canvas also calls that scene to mind in the book and the Brotherhood. Um, and those, those dresses that um, John Duquesne thinks of, girls and their dresses, is a recurrent image in, in the nice and the good. So I think what I'm trying to understand in, in thinking about this is to what extent was Iris Murdoch's imagination, a visual imagination, and to what extent were the, the, the stories accompanied by pictures uh, the big influence? I, I, I'd love to see the, the, the Treasure Island that she was familiar with, because there are, in some of the early editions, very good illustrations of precisely that, that scene of Jim Hawkins up the mast about to shoot Israel Hands. Um, and so I, I want to, uh, to, to comment on, on, on those thoughts and Jan. Certainly, um, that she used images from the novels as icons. The, the mast that Jim Hawkins climbed, climbed, climbs up is the cross mast. It's in the shape of a cross. Mm. Um, the image of Peter Pan uh, that I, I may or may not have time to talk about. Um, her, her dealings with Peter Pan, the meditation point for her exploration of the myth of Peter Pan in the novels is taken from the statue of Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens. I think this is what she held in her mind. Mm. And I certainly think that she took images from the books. Um, I'd love to know whether she read them. I think she possibly did read them with illustrations. Um, because, but she had very much of a visual imagination and she was very interested both in the visual arts, obviously, and in icons yeah. and the use of icons. I think these images from children's novels were used as meditation points that she would call up, particularly in Peter Pan. And we, we talked at the beginning about how far this is, you need to read a psychoanalytic reading of the text to find out these images that are unconsciously seeping in. Uh, certainly with, with Peter Pan, I think this is very deliberate. And this mm. image of Peter Pan and the statue of Peter Pan is yes. deliberately evoked for her to explore some very difficult is issues about male sexuality yeah. in the novels. I mean, she was only about four when she first saw that statue, wasn't she? Well, yes, because, um, apparently when she went to the Froebel Institute, uh, she used to go for school walks there. And then in, to right up to the end of her life, I think yeah. uh, the last Christmas day before yeah. she died, she and John had walked over to the statue of Peter Pan in Kensington mm. Gardens. Because she didn't actually read the book until she was an adult. I mean, it was no, John she, Bailey who introduced John the book Bailey to her. introduced her to the book of Peter Pan. Mm. Um, it was the play. She did yes, know the play. she saw the play. Mm. She read the play. Uh, and she says in these interviews that you speak about, Jan, um, 
whenever she speaks about Peter Pan, uh, she said the play had a very special meaning for her. Mm. She actually declined. She was invited to see the actor Mark Rylance in the RSC production of the play. She refused. Uh. She turned it down. She said that the play was so strong, the memory of the play was so strong that she didn't want to see it performed in case it uh, spoiled it for her. I, I think that's a, it's a really important image and as you say an icon I, I think it really deserves its own podcast actually because it, it turns up yes. so often in yeah. so many of the novels and you say it's almost a touchstone <laughs> throughout her life so I think what, what, what we'll do Anne I think we'll, we'll arrange a, a, another recording and we'll and, and you and I can can talk through the and, and Jan can join us if you'd like to yes. as well. I um, have three pages of notes on <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can, we, and uh, I think that that'll be uh, a, a um I think just, just, just because of the, the time limitations on, on, on the podcasts. Um, Anna, can I, can I have some thoughts on you a little bit about, um, about Alice in Wonderland? Then maybe we'll move on to thinking about Rajat Kipling um, to, to, to round up today. Um, you know, I have a huge confession to make. I don't like the book, Alice in Wonderland. Um, and I... I I have to say, I, I have nothing of any value to contribute on Alice of Wonderland for the simple reason that uh, when I was co-teaching this with one of my colleagues at Kingston, I always bailed out. I have never given a lecture and never taught. And I remember reading Alice in Wonderland as a child and absolutely being horrified by it and, and not liking it at all. I didn't like Alice. I thought the story was rather silly. So I. This is a dreadful admission to have to make, but I've never been able to pick up because I don't know the story well enough because I know Peter Pan so well and I know Treasure Island so well. I mean, you, you can you can find these resonances very easily. Uh, Jan, I was fascinated to hear you talk about the Pool of Tears uh, and, and Duquesne in, in the cave because it wasn't, it isn't one that I picked up on. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that raises the whole issue, actually, in terms of intertextuality, of how much it matters to the reader to have any sort of familiarity um, with these texts at all. I mean, her, her novels are absolutely full of um, allusions to and references, not just to her children's re reading in childhood, but to all the adult authors that she loved, like Dostoevsky and Henry James and George um, Yes, but, yeah. but you know, yeah. does, how much does it matter to a, a reader that, how much did it matter to you, for example, that you didn't immediately think of that picture of Alice swimming when you read not that bit in the book? None at all. That's really interesting. Yes. But of... that's not to say, um, you know, when I was talking about Francis Marlowe, linking Francis Marlowe and Blind Poop changes my view, alerts you to something in the novel. Yes. Yeah. have picked out if I wasn't so familiar with Treasure Island. So mm. I think that I, I am missing something because I haven't got that knowledge, but it doesn't inhibit the reading or the enjoyment of the no. book that I'm missing it. But if I did have that knowledge, it would it enrich my reading of the text enormously. Yeah, and, and I'm sure for each of us and, and for everybody listening as well, they will have picked up on particular intertextual references to all sorts of different things. It's um, yes. So whether they know that the landscape of London or not, for example, is another important. Yes, I know we, we have yeah. a lot of international listeners who perhaps don't yes. know so well the, the landscape of London or, or the um, or know know much that much about Oxford. 
and how much does it matter? I mean, she always said, you know, her, her first aim was to create a, a really good, enjoyable story. And if that's yeah. what they got out of it, then that was fine. Yes, yes. Can I just give you one quotation from um, uh, uh, an interview she did when uh, she was asked about Derrida? Um, uh, because this is a real life example of her using her love of Alice books to to yeah, please do, yeah. um, illustrate how she was feeling. She was asked about um, Derrida and she said, well, you know the thing in Through the Looking Glass um, where Alice is introduced to the pudding. Pudding, Alice, Alice, pudding. And then she can't eat it because she's just spoken to it. Well, I met Derrida and I did rather like him, I must say. So that's an example of where she calls to mind just in everyday discussion, something of that book. She actually slightly misquotes it. It's, it's more complex than that. It's, it's the, the, the leg of mutton that she gets, Alice gets introduced to first. And it's, it's the queen who says, you can't, it's impolite to um, want to eat something that you've just been intro introduced to. Um, but um, it's it stuck in her mind as everyday talk, not just, not just in something where she was constructing a text. Mm. That, that everyday talk that, that, that has resonances of children's literature, of course, um, that magical world that she and John lived in particularly yes. got uh, more frail and, and became more ill. Uh, and they lived in this little world which was all full of bunnies and, and little walks in the garden and looking at flowers and enjoying that childhood innocence. It's almost as if she wanted a retreat yes. back and he wanted to help her get back in some way to that world. Uh, but do you think, do you think, Anne, that actually it was also recreating a very enclosed world in her childhood with her parents and with her father? Because as far as we know, they were very self-contained. They, they didn't uh, entertain much. Um, he, Hughes seems not to have had many friends and hardly anyone came to the funeral and uh, they were quiet and he was, she said bookish and um, gentle uh, and very caring, but not particularly gregarious. Yes. And so in a way that that sense of safety, which must have been horrendously disrupted when she went to boarding school. And, and that's why I, I, I'm interested in the extent to which that was as a, um, an experience which drove her more into herself to reading or whether she felt it was a betrayal of, of some part of the ideal triangle, the what we should call it, the perfect triangle of love. I think that would come into it. But I also think she had a genuine thirst for knowledge and a thirst, you know, that, that little letter that I read, the thirst for excitement, the tension, the action, the excitement, the poetry of, of, of the, the works that she was reading. Um, she was loved that, she was imbibing it as she was reading it as well. So immersing herself in that, I mean, I you know, mm -hmm. when she went to school was very complex, I think. It was part of carrying on the tradition that she experienced with her father, but simple enjoyment and love of something. And, and, and out of that comes this determined determination by the time she's eight years old, nine years old, 
to say, I'm going to write. This is yes. what I want to do. But th there's one, again, quotation I wanted to um, use in terms of how she felt about going to school because she wrote an article for the Elizabethan magazine in 1963, which I suspect I might have read because I used to take that magazine, uh, called Iris Murdoch Regrets She Was Never a Teenager. And she says, um, I was a schoolgirl in my teens. Being a schoolgirl, I submit, is something essentially dreary. At least I found it so. There are plenty of storybooks about school life, but school life is not like the storybooks. I discovered no myth, no picture, which could lend colour to those years. Years which can be about the most wretched in one's life, I think, when one can't either play as a child or enjoy as an adult, the least free years of one's life. So that's so an escape. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thank you for that, Jan. Jan, could you say a little bit um, before we before we have to finish about um, about Kim. Rajat Kipling and about Kim? Because I think, again, this is one of those three major texts for her. And um, I think it's probably for, for those listening, it's probably the least well known out of yeah. the three. So perhaps you could give a little bit of detail about why she enjoy it and enjoyed it and, and how important it was in, in, in the fiction. Yes, I, uh, Kim is referred to again, very frequently in the fiction uh, as uh, a character as though we, we know him. And I, I agree with you that it's probably the least familiar text for many readers. I hadn't read it uh, before I started exploring this topic. I came to it completely. I mean, I'd heard of it. Mm. Uh, I think people think of Kipling and think of the Jungle Book more than or just those stories. Um, but Kim is the novel that Murdoch described as giving her a great feeling of living inside it. It's a story of a, a, a young boy. He's actually Irish, but he, he lives in India. He's an orphan and he's, he's more or less living as a, a, a beggar and just doing odd bits of work um, for almost spying um, uh, in uh, Lahore as, as, the, as the novel starts. And he meets a Tibetan Lama and it's the story of his travel with the Lama to uh, find the great the the um, the river uh, and to for the Lama's spiritual search of the the sacred river, um, and he's also Kim is involved in the great game, which was the the espionage that took place during this period in uh, India, where the the British uh, were trying to find out what the Russians were up to. So it's an adventure story in some ways. Um, but it's also a spiritual search that the young boy um, goes with this uh, older figure, his father figure, in search of the ideal, the, the, the spiritual healing and, and resolution. Um, it's, it's a sort of spy story um, and it's full of, and this I think, this is my feeling about it, it's full of rich, vibrant, uh, ex exotic interiors and exteriors, a landscape that's full of um, a completely different and vibrant world. And that seems to have been what most influenced Iris Murdoch, this, this opportunity to live inside somewhere so richly 
different and so peaceful in a way. I mean, lots of adventures happen and there are exciting incidents, but there's something about the sense of a spiritual search, which anchors, I think, her engagement with it. Um, it's certainly not one that I know well. I know the outline of the story. Yes, read, yeah. Just read the story myself. I think the the difficulty with Kipling now is is he is seen, you know, fairly or perhaps partially unfairly as, as a as a product of his time as a, as very much a colonial writer. Yes, a writer who is, is deeply suspect and quite and um, has <laughs> very, very racist overtones, um, and in which he does inserts um, particularly in his, in his poetry. Um, and is is Murdoch's enjoyment of Kipling. Um, does, does it show her as a as a child of her time, really, reading something like this? And do you also see the influence of Kipling on her writing? Uh, again, I'm, I'm not. I have read Kim. Um, I must have read it when I was in the first year at, at grammar school um, because I've got the book. Mm. I don't remember too much about it. It didn't have the same effect uh, on me. Uh, I, I think it's inevitable. Um, all those things that Jan said, as you were speaking, Jan, the spiritual search, all those things must have, mm. I think, will have informed her thinking uh, in some way. And also the idea of a pupil-teacher um, relationship, yes. because um, uh, George McCaffrey in The Philosopher's Pupil sees Rosanoff in, in uh, the role of uh, Kim's Lama, he, he, he explicitly says. Um, Anne Cabbage in Nuns and Soldiers thinks about her future where she'll settle down like Kim's Lama. Um, the, this idea of, and the, the character, Kim in a way, the character he nearest resembles, he's a shapeshifter, Kim. He dresses, you know, he dresses up, he deceives people, he takes part in the, in the spying. Um, is, is Nigel in um, Bruno's Dream, who also, over rooftops, you know, this sort of sense of a, almost a fairy-like uh, leaping around and in the dark and, and um, lying, transforming this engagement with, with um, an, uh, a sort of mystery. Um, Kim is, is the nearest character, I think, to, to Kim is probably um, Nigel in, in um, Bruno's dream. Uh, but quite a minor figure, I suppose. So not a. It's more the. It's the, this idea of the. Um, the relationship, but Peter Conradi talks about um, us having innocent pleasure in Kim. I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but it's that idea that it's a. Um, we can go along with the the young boy and enjoy what's happening. Mm. Go well, along for the ride, if you like. Same with, uh, with Jim Hawkins, the same with Yes, yeah, it is. And a lot of this idea of perceiving the world through innocence is, a re is really important to, um, to most. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think if nothing else we've learned from, from just talking about all these books, and th there's, a, there's a huge amount of material there. There's a book here. On oh, yes, that. absolutely. Yeah. Can we say a little bit about the school story? Miles, is that appropriate now? That would be, be fine. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm just interested in, in the, the school story because we know that Iris Murdoch read Angela Brazil, um, which I also did. That was, that was part of my childhood, endless school stories. Um, and uh, she, I think she almost certainly read boys' school stories as well because uh, there were so many of those around. 
boarding school stories, usually. Um, but the only novel that she writes, which is set in a school, is The Sandcastle. Uh, there are obviously flashbacks in The Bell to mm. when Michael Mead is uh, a teacher uh, and, and Mick meets Nick, but Nick Fawley. But essentially, it's The Sandcastle, which has a school as a setting. But it's, uh, I've got one thought about The Sandcastle, which is always slightly sort of bombing. It feels like a hybrid novel because it feels like a novel which has this central romantic theme of the more Bill Moore's falling in love with, the, he's the middle-aged disillusioned school teacher who falls in love with the young painter who comes to paint the portrait of the retired headmaster de Moynt. So you have a, a, a falling in love, um, uh, but within that central, very realist romantic, and it was sometimes criticized for being over romanticized, that central story, you have lots of things going on in the school. And what I feel is that that school scaffolding, which, which provides the ambiance, the, the setting, is much more derived from the canonical, the tropes of the canonical school story than it is from a realist adult experience of living in a, a boys boarding school or being part of a boys boarding school. Because if you look at the things that happen, you've got the the traditional things that happen from in, in school stories from um, Tom Brown's school days onwards. I don't know if Iris Murdoch read Tom Brown's school days or not, no evidence of that, but it was very much um, a popular book of the time. Um, the, Latin the Latin class where a child fails to translate properly occurs in almost all school stories of the time of, of, of the earlier period. And we have Paul Rigdon who fails to translate um, for more whom he's, he's devoted to, for the teacher that he wants so badly to please and, and where he fails miserably to, to, to have done his work. Um, you've got the cricket match, which is an iconic sort of symbol of boys literature, but Iris played cricket. She loved cricket. She, mm. In her letters to um, Brian Medlin, I think, isn't it? She, she talks about her love of cricket and how she played and played in the, in the school 11. Um, and, and not just cricket. She, she, was, um, she played, I think, hockey. She, swam, yes. she did a lot. And she also um, was the school reporter on, on, on sports events. And, and there's lots right. of them in the, in the bad, interesting. magazines. Yeah. But cricket, she felt, was a, a much superior game to, to many others, certainly to tennis, I think. Um, and although there is some evidence that there was a real scene where I think her mother appeared at a school cricket match and, and um, caused a lot of, of uh, interest, uh, the, the scene in the sandcastle where Rain Carter comes and disrupts the, the cricket match where Moore has gone to watch his son play. Um, Again, I, I just have this sense that Murdoch was taking the popular scenes that happen in all school stories and, and building her central story around them. That's just a thought, really. No, I think that's a very good one as well. I think you, you absolutely highlight the tension um, in, in that novel, which is, I think, quite underrated. 
but also the, oh, agree, yeah. but the two children in, in the sandcastle are so strange and so odd aren't they? Um, they, they are there are, I think um, Andrew Wilson says childhood um, is not represented in Iris Murdoch novels um, so there are the children who are the children in the novels very very often people say they're not very realistic You've just said they're very strange. Again, I have this thought that both Felicity in um, The Sandcastle and Miranda in An Unofficial Rose, Miranda, who Anne references, was in love with Felix Meacham, I actually think are extremely convincing portraits of a sort of early adolescent, pre-adolescent girls desperate fear of losing the father mm, sure. and the need to um in the Oedipal sense attract the father from the mother so felicity in um under the in, in sorry in um the sandcastle makes an, a little image doesn't she of rain carter and has this uh, tarot pack and goes to the 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 the, um, the, the beach and, and has a whole sort of sticking pins in the in the figure of the woman whom she wants to take away from her father. Miranda in an unofficial rose has this wonderful and I think extremely convincing leap from a great height from the top of a tree in order that Felix will take notice of her in fact he catches her in his arms and somehow those two girls speak to me about a psychopathology of a young teenage or young girl which which I sense that that came from somewhere does that make sense yeah I think that comes out of her thinking about Peter Pan again do you realization of the child um the thing that she found disturbing about the books about the play uh, and the statue is the the over sexualization of of the, the you know the bottoms of the fairies are on the statue that they're they're rounded little bottoms and right quite um sexualized uh, and i mean the whole exploration of, of that she uses peter pan for in the novels is this very difficult transition stage that men have problem with from um from moving from childhood into adulthood and not being able to negotiate that sexual transformation of, of love for the mother and it's all very Oedipal. Mm. So I think that links in with what you're saying is that she's, she's very, very interested in that transition period between the adult and the child and the problems that, that can cause if you can't negotiate it. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely a fair comment and we can again we can trace that right the way through think about the three girls and the green knight for example yeah the loss of the father and then clement and you know the, these kind of um replacement father figures that, that that come in again i think that's probably going to have to be um for another time oh. another podcast so to come back again <laughs> i'm afraid but um it's been a wonderful discussion today um and and I'm, I, I do hope you'll come back and talk more about peter pan because i, I know we didn't get onto it in great detail today um, Jan, you'd be very welcome to, to, to come on that one as well, um, that we, we can record in the, in the near future. But um, no, it, it's been a real pleasure to cover 
so many of Murdoch's novels, but also to, to have such great discussion about, um, about Kipling, about Stevenson, about Lewis Carroll as well. Um, so my very great thanks to, um, to Jan Skinner and to Anne Rowe um, for talking us through these, these, um, these ideas. And um, Jan's essay um, will make available to you as well, so you can um, read even more if you wish to. Um, so my thanks to, to them and my thanks to you all for listening.